Today's episode of Dog Nation Daily is brought to you by Pella Window and Door of Georgia, viewed to be the best. Presented by DogNation.com, this is Dog Nation Daily, the daily podcast for Georgia Bulldogs fans. Here's your host, Brandon Adams. We are going to talk a couple of different times in today's program about SEC Commissioner Greg Sankey for various reasons that Sankey's currently in the news. And as we're beginning our show today, Sankey on a Twitter X, whatever you want to call it now, a couple of minutes ago, put this out here. I guess Sankey does a lot of like book recommendations and things like that. And so a book that Sankey sort of says that he's reading and I guess recommending to the rest of his followers here is a book from a guy called, is it Thucydides? I think it's like an old time person, like philosopher perhaps of some kind. Thucydides is how you say that? I'm not very learned, so I'm not really sure. But I believe that may be Thucydides. The, the book is called How to Think About War. It's a uh, an ancient guide to foreign policy. That's a that's apparently the book that uh, SEC Commissioner Greg Sankey is reading right now. Perhaps foreshadowing the fact that he believes as one of the important key leaders in college football, we're sort of moving into a wartime in which everyone's sort of fighting for their piece of the pie here in college football, whether that be program versus program, league versus league, or you know sport versus TV network. Everyone is sort of divide all of this up. That. Greg Sankey, you would, I think, presume, based on that message there, is kind of preparing to move into a little bit of a war footing, wartime footing. We've said around here before ourselves that we think to a certain extent that's probably true a little bit. I do believe that the sort of nature of most college football conversations moving forward in the future is about to get a little bit more combative. Now, to be honest with you, I kind of think that's fun. I sort of like the idea of rolling up sleeves and kind of putting up dukes and sort of going back and forth here a little bit. I think it reflects the reality of what should be going on, which is there's only so much success to go around, so much monetary reward to go around for that success. Of course, you're going to be competitive. And of course, in a competitive environment, people are going to do whatever they can to achieve that success. So if Sankey's recognizing this as a wartime and apparently reading ancient philosophers as a way of getting ready for that, that seems like a pretty reasonable choice as far as we're concerned. But from the standpoint of Georgia football, what do you do about this sort of like, and I don't mean like tanks and bombers, can we please, you know, obviously understand that. But if you're a Georgia fan, like, what do you do about a time in which college football feels a lot more warlike than it perhaps, you know, has in the past? I think the thing that you do is, I think that you understand that a lot of people are going to view you as an enemy. And a lot of people are going to do whatever is needed to take down one of their enemies. And in a competitive environment when there's only so much success to go around and the difference between winning and losing is such a giant chasm, you should assume that people are going to do whatever they can do, whatever they need to do to take you down. Perhaps even unfairly excluding you from the college football playoff, which brings us to something I want to play for you here. So James Cook, the former Georgia running back, obviously a part of a national championship in 2021, and now a very successful member of the Buffalo Bills. Although the Bills season doesn't quite end the way that they would like for it to have, Cook certainly had a tremendous year up there in Buffalo. Well, he was being interviewed, I think this is by USA Today, USA Today interviewing James Cook, Cook's in his car, and the subject came up of Georgia, and James Cook shared via USA Today a little bit of a, I guess you'll call it a conspiracy theory, a little bit of a conspiracy theory as to why Georgia was unfairly excluded from the college football playoff and what would have happened had Georgia been in this year's CFP. This is James Cook. I saw this this weekend. Take a listen to this. If Georgia is in the playoffs this year, we win it all. And I think they didn't want to see us go back to back. We lost one game to Alabama in the SEC championship and haven't been beaten the whole season. It was like the same scenario my my year, my my last year in college. We, we, we won every game and lost to to Alabama in the SEC championship, but we still got in and then went on and won it all. But I just feel like they knew what Nick Saban was. Knew he was going to retire, so they tried to sneak him in and won. So James Cook's conspiracy theory is they knew Nick Saban was going to retire and they wanted Saban to be in the college football playoffs, so they let him go in place of Georgia. Now, let me say this, and I think many of you are probably on the same page with me, I believe, on this. 
I've got zero problem with, with uh, James Cook here expressing a conspiracy theory on Georgia's behalf. A, I think it's kind of nice when former dogs still have a lot of affection for their program, and I love the idea that Cook's out there speaking like any of us as Georgia fans would. Hey, we got robbed, and they should have done this, and whatever, whatever. The fact that James Cook still sounds like a Georgia fan when he talks about the Georgia program, even though he's not from Georgia and since gone on to great success uh, you know, there in the NFL, I kind of like that. It kind of makes me feel good to know this still means something to James Cook. That's really cool. And so I have no problem with expressing the conspiracy theory. In fact, I kind of like the idea that he's sort of thinking about, you know, who might be out to get Georgia and whatever else. My only issue with what James Cook says in that particular clip is, is that I think that James Cook is looking at the wrong part of a potential conspiracy. I think the thing that Cook is looking at is probably not the most accurate for a reflection of what really happened to Georgia. Georgia, I believe, was unfairly excluded from this year's uh, college football playoff, but not to the benefit of Alabama. As much as it pains me to admit, Alabama did beat Georgia head-to-head. Alabama hasn't argued to be in the college football playoff because of that. Really had no beef with Alabama being in. But that doesn't mean there wasn't a conspiracy against UGA. Our view of that conspiracy is, is that it's a team like Washington who you know, uh, played in a league that's no longer in existence. A team like Texas, who has so little respect for the league that it won that it left the league as soon as the season was done. The fact that those two teams were easily included in the college football playoff without very much in the way of discussion about how a Georgia team that had previously won 29 straight games, how they should be considering all of that. That's where I believe the potential conspiracy comes in on all of this. I think that Cook is right to look at this through a conspiratorial lens I just think that ultimately James is probably looking at the wrong team who benefited from this potential conspiracy theory. Now, there is also that part of, I think some fans are like, well, you don't want to be paranoid or whatever else. But the truth is, it isn't actually paranoia if they really are out to get you. You've sort of heard this said before. And in Greg Sankey's eyes of, hey, a college football landscape that now looks a whole lot more warlike than it used to, you know, there are a lot of entities out there, whether they be other colleges, other uh, conferences, other whatever, that sort of look at Georgia as an enemy, an enemy to be taken down. Now, you may say, well, how come all these folks don't like Georgia? You know, where does this come from? Georgia won the 2022 national championship by a 65 to 7 margin. That is not good for college football. This year, having teams like Washington and Texas and Michigan, teams from all these various regions of the country playing more competitive games against each other, that clearly is better for business. You can say what you want to about the college football playoff selection committee. Their ability to select the correct teams, the best teams, that may be pretty deficient. But their ability to recognize what's best for business, they're pretty good at that. The teams they selected for this year's college football playoff, whether they were the four best or not, they were clearly the best for business because the ratings were through the roof. Uh, America was clearly engaged because programs close to you, wherever you may have lived, were you know seemingly in this year's college football playoff, and you didn't have to worry about a 65-7 to 7 margin of victory the way that you did in the 2022 National Championship. So James Cook, we would say, is sort of uh, you know, you know, right to be on guard for unfair exclusion from the college football playoff. We would just say, though, that it wasn't Alabama who benefited from Georgia's exclusion. It was a program like Washington and Texas, and the fact there really wasn't much in the way of debate there, we think is really unfair. Now, there's a reason why we bring all this up here today is because moving forward, this is very relevant for UGA. And speaking of the whole like Georgia, Alabama thing, you know, James Cook wasn't the only one talking about that here over the course of this weekend. There's an ESPN personality. His name is Matt Barry. Matt Barry was on one of these uh, college, it was actually the Greg McElroy college football you know, podcast deal that he does. And they were talking about, once again, the Georgia-Alabama thing of, well, Nick Saban has retired. How much does this impact Georgia? What does this mean for Georgia? And I think in a roundabout way, this kind of furthers the conversation that we're having here right now. I think Barry brings up some pretty important words about you know, the fact that there's no longer a Nick Saban at Alabama, that perhaps might not be as relevant for UGA as you might think. This is what the ESPN personality called Matt Barry said about this with uh, Greg McElroy here this weekend. Take a listen. How much of a benefit to Georgia is Nick Saban's retirement? I think it's a moot point. 
because I think Georgia had proven they had, they had slayed that giant. I mean, they won back-to-back national championships, and they're an SEC championship away, you could argue. I still think Georgia was one of the four best teams in the country last year going into the playoff. I mean, they had one loss, and it was to Alabama. And so I think that Georgia got over that hurdle a few years ago. Now, having said that, you know, having not to face Alabama in the SEC championship as a Nick Saban coach team is probably going to make Kirby Smart sleep a little bit better at night. So it's interesting to me that you got James Cook talking Georgia-Alabama this weekend. You got Matt Barry talking about Georgia and Alabama here this weekend. But ultimately, I think it's Barry who probably gets this right, which is, hey, you know, the idea that, you know, Saban beat Georgia in the last game, he'll coach against them and then retired after that. Ultimately for UGA, that's kind of probably a little bit of a moot point. Georgia had already shown they could beat Alabama. Kirby Smart had already shown they could beat Nick Saban. If anything, Georgia stands to benefit now from a college football landscape that no longer excludes Alabama, or I should say includes Nick Saban at Alabama. But ultimately, the story of the 2023 season uh, kind of shows that Georgia's biggest issue isn't actually even Alabama. It's what can happen when the college football playoffs like committee has the opportunity to kind of choose whether they want Georgia to be a part of it or not. And this sort of war-like time that we're living in that uh, Greg Sankey was perhaps thinking about with his recent book selection, what you realize is, is if the powers that be have any chance to exclude Georgia, of course they're going to do it. Now, if you're listening to all this, you wonder, well, okay, so where does, should this land with a Georgia fan then? What should this mean then for a Georgia fan about how to kind of view the the, the landscape that we're currently in or the landscape that we're entering into around college football, I I think it simply comes down to this. Because of the easy belief that some, including James Cook, have about what may have happened in the world of a four-team playoff, I don't think you have to worry about that as much going forward. That Georgia, I think, stands to benefit from a 12-team playoff, from an expanded playoff, as much as anybody possibly could. Because good things seem to happen to Georgia when they earn the right to play against non-SEC teams, whether it's Alabama or somebody else, in one of these elimination-style games. As I said before, it's 65-7 against TCU. It's a thrilling win against Ohio State. It's a blowout win against Michigan. It's a bowl win against top-10 Cincinnati. It's a neutral site win against Clemson beginning the 2021 season. On and on you can go. you got to go back to, what, Sugar Bowl 2018, the last time Georgia lost a game in a non-conference matchup to a Power 5 and, uh, opponent. It just doesn't happen. Georgia always seems to win these games. In the future, Georgia's going to get a chance to play a lot more of these style of games there as well. So was Georgia conspired against to be excluded from the college football playoff this past year? James Cook certainly seems to think so. Who are we to say that he's wrong? But moving forward, Georgia fans probably won't have to worry about this quite as much because in the future world, you're not going to be able to beat Georgia quite in, uh, <laughs> as easily in the boardroom anymore. You're going to have to beat them on the field. And to some of these non-conference foes who look forward to the chance of trying to get that done, history would sure show that is a very difficult thing to do. My name is Brandon Adams, and this is Dog Nation Daily, the daily podcast for Georgia Bulldogs fans, presented by Pella Window and Door of Georgia. We are happy to have you with us, no matter how you get to us today, live on video, 945, first and 15, dognation.com, dognation app. 10 a.m. after that, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, Twitch, radio, Athens Sports Radio, 960 Ref, podcast, wherever you find them, including the world-famous dognation.com. We are just very happy to have you with us on the show today. And a huge thanks to our friends at Pella Window and Door of Georgia, who make it all possible. Energy-efficient windows and doors. That is what Pella Window and Door of Georgia is all about. That means keeping your home feeling nice and cozy and comfortable on the inside the way that it's supposed to be and looking great on the outside the way that it could be. And when you improve that curb appeal, not only does it make you a great neighbor and not only does that sort of show you taking the best possible care of the uh, home that you have your great financial investment in, you make your memories in, but it also potentially uh, impacts your resale value in a positive way and all kinds of great reasons to kind of take that next step, improving the quality of your windows and doors with Pella windows and doors. So stop by and see them in their experience in there in Duluth. You can put your hands on the product and sort of find out what makes it feel great 
and I think you'll recognize the uh, quality right away. You can also have one of those Pella experts stop by and see you in your home there. It'll be a no-pressure consultation. They simply want to educate you about why Pella Window and Door is such a uh, great thing for you and why they offer such a great product for you there as well. They also have great savings here, too, because between now and the end of the month, February 29th here in this leap year, you can get 10% off Pella projects and 0% APR for 36 months. So stop by and see them in Duluth or visit the website PellaofGA.com slash DogNation. That's PellaofGA.com slash DogNation or give them a call 678-638-1429. That's 678-638-1429. Pella Window and Door of Georgia is viewed to be the best. All right, we are going to talk to John Stinchcomb here in a moment. Always a fun conversation. Prior to that, though, I want to go around the doghouse here today. And every now and then you sort of see something and you sort of realize, okay, this is going to be a little bit of a talking point. People are going to sort of be, you know, kind of paying attention to this here a little bit. One of the things we talked about on Friday was Julian Juju Lewis, the terrific five-star quarterback, now all part of the class of 2025, who was taking a visit to UGA. And as we often do, we saw some photos of the visit. A lot of times George will use the basketball games as a little bit of a backdrop uh, to kind of host some of these visitors. And the uh, picture that Juju himself shared was, had a great time visiting Georgia football today. And you see uh, Lewis sitting next to Kirby Smart. And this is one of those things I sort of knew right away was going to get a little bit of attention because admittedly, the look on Julian Lewis's face here is not exactly the most warm, welcoming, not the biggest smile on his face. And I think you're sort of left to wonder, well, you know, how much body language do you read in here? If you're watching on video, you obviously see this. If you're listening, radio or podcast, you don't. But trust me when I tell you that Lewis is not exactly sporting the biggest smile here as he sits next to Kirby Smart. Now, as someone who also, as we've joked about on this program, has a little bit of an issue with the listening face from time to time, my sort of like resting BA face is not always quite as, you know, as great as it could be either. Every now and then I just uh, sort of lose the countenance a little bit. Maybe that's what Julian Lewis is uh, doing here. You know, maybe Lewis just doesn't, you know, enjoy smiling for photographs or whatever else. Perhaps, as some of the Georgia critics will say, it's a sign that Lewis doesn't really want to come to UGA. Uh, but I, I sort of got the impression, and I've message board behavior would lead me to believe this is true, there are some non-Georgia fans right now having a little bit of fun with the fact that Lewis's vi- uh, uh, photo of his visit to UGA did not in- exactly include the happiest-looking photograph, honesty compels me to admit. Now, this also kind of brought me back to something that Jeff Sintel said on Friday, that you know, a few times this past year when Lewis was on campus for visit to UGA during game days, and sometimes he sort of had the same overall look on his face or the same perhaps perceived level of interest in all of this. And so if you're trying to kind of help make sense of what some of this might mean, you know, Jeff Sintel gave us this as a little bit of a foreshadowing to the visit that took place. This is Jeff from our show on Friday. I think there's a good chance that somebody's going to flip Julian Juju Lewis. I also think that behind the scenes, Julian and his camp have kind of warmed a little bit more to the idea of being a bulldog. Remember, he took two visits uh, last year to varying degrees of interest. Yeah, I saw one visit where he was basically eating chicken fingers or somewhere else, maybe even watching the USC game at halftime when Georgia was beating the brakes off somebody. But I don't know if those two things are connective. I think somebody can and maybe likely will flip Juju. I just don't know if it's the dogs in Athens. So a couple of things there from Jeff Sintel, and I think that's obviously interesting on a couple of fronts. A, Jeff takes it very seriously that Lewis, who's currently a USC commit, could be on the open market and someone could have the chance to uh, to flip him away. Jeff says, I don't really quite know if that's going to be Georgia. Now, that's not because Lewis doesn't smile very you know warmly in a photograph. Jeff says this could be more of an NIL-related recruitment. Obviously, that's not the kind of thing. You know, that Georgia's always been, you know, the 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 heaviest favorite in, although I did mention on Friday's show, this could be about the time in which Georgia fully unlocks and unleashes all of its NIL apparatus. We'll see if that ends up being true. But Jeff does reference much the same way the the photo from Saturday sort of sees Lewis not exactly, you know, cheesing for the camera, that some of those visits he took in the fall kind of had the the same overall vibe. So I'll let some of you who are really into body language and things like that determine what you think that might mean. However, there was something else from the Lewis visit, and I find this to be really fascinating. And of all the things we're going to talk about over the course of this portion of the offseason, that sort of early, you know, sort of Q1 of this 2024 calendar year, 
I don't know that we'll hear anything from a prominent newsmaker that's more important than than this particular statement right here in terms of you know what actually went down on Julian Lewis's visit to Georgia. The photo may not have told you much, but a quote that Lewis gave to a guy named Steve Wiltfong, who covers recruiting for 24-7 sports, boy, this seems to speak volumes. And there is something to this that I think really matters here. What Wiltfong put on X is the quote from Julian Lewis after his visit. There were a lot of guys here today, Lewis says, I don't think any of us, now listen to this, this is Julian Lewis quote from Steve Wilfong, 24-7 Sports. I don't think that any of us realize how productive the offense has been over the last two years. I was able to spend a lot of time talking with Coach Bobo, and that's uh, Gummy, Montgomery Van, Van Gorder, the former Buford quarterback, Brian Van Gorder's son, who's a UGA staffer. He says it was a good day. But the money quote from Lewis is, is that listening to these Georgia coaches speaking, I don't think any of us realize how productive the offense had been over the course of the last couple of years. And my clear takeaway on all this is, is it is obvious that negative recruiting works. And it's obvious that programs are going to participate in negative recruiting because negative recruiting certainly can drag a program down in the mind and the perception of a recruit. It certainly seems like Julian Lewis is acknowledging that here right now. And if Lewis feels this way, then you would certainly stand to uh, assume that a lot of other top recruits feel this way there as well, despite the fact that the results say something different. You know, Georgia, I believe, is what, second in the SEC in scoring here this year. There weren't a lot of teams sort of scoring at that 40-point-per-game clip this season because the, you know, the overall offensive numbers, uh, you know, were a little bit lower this year across the sport. They had been, but Georgia was among the best. And yet still, when it comes to top-flight offensive prospects, they've got programs apparently in their ear saying, don't go to Georgia. Don't go to Georgia. They don't do anything with offense. They don't produce offense. And yet the results actually speak for themselves. Now, to Kirby Smart's credit, this is the kind of thing he's been fighting against for quite some time, although maybe to not always great success. In fact, let me give you an example of this. Prior to the 2022 season, when Georgia you know, continued to sort of set uh, a very high standard offensively and would obviously end up producing another national championship, once again before that year began, Kirby was still so, you know, sort of forced to fight battles in public about how explosive he truly believed the Georgia offense had been here during this national championship era. And what Smart said back then is just as relevant as ever in a time like this when a guy like Julian Lewis is saying, gosh, I didn't realize how good this Georgia offense actually was. This is smart as kind of a retort to some of this negative recruiting from 2022. Well, we want to be explosive, and we were last year. You know, people have this miss. Everybody talks about the defense. that got overshadowed that we were top 10 in explosive passes, um, a lot better than a lot of teams in the country at throwing the ball down the field. We did that with very effective because we were able to run the ball. So we have to continue to do that. So let me bottom line this this way. I, I think this is uh, pretty important. I don't know if Julian Lewis is going to come to Georgia or not. I told you that on Friday. I do take Georgia seriously in this recruitment, but ultimately I don't know where Lewis ends up going. I, I don't think anybody can for sure, nor do I know if his photograph, not exactly smiling the most, you know, uh, the biggest smile necessarily means all that much either. But I do know this. Lewis' own telling of all of this leads you to believe there is a very effective negative recruiting pitch going on against Georgia, even if the facts themselves don't support that very well. And that's the battle that Georgia's got to fight. And so as you move ahead into the 2024 season, anything that Georgia can do to kind of showcase its offense, it'd probably be pretty wise to do it. And in any kind of recruiting battle with a guy like Lewis or a top-flight wide receiver or a big-time running back or anything else, it's pretty clear that Georgia's got to roll up its sleeves and be ready to fight hard to show what it's all about because there are a lot of people out there trying to plant some very negative seeds as it relates to UGA and what it's doing on the offensive side of the football. And that is around the doghouse here today on Dog Nation Daily presented by Pella Window and Door of Georgia. Now, before we're done with the program today, one of the biggest stories of the weekend apparently involves a little bit of a union perhaps for a brief period of time being formed with the SEC and the Big Ten. 
we have some insight into what that uh, what the purpose of that union might be. We'll tell you more about that before we're done on the program today. But for now, getting ready for everything involving the uh, Georgia Bulldogs and all the fun uh, of what's happening around Athens and the rest of this program right now. Let's get ready to cover all of that ground and more. The latest on UGA as we talk to John Stinchcomb here today on Dog Nation Daily, presented by Pella Window and Door of Georgia. Athens and across the SEC or wherever the recruiting trail may lead, here's a DogNation.com insider. We'll say hello to John Stinchcomb here, Dog Nation Daily, presented by Pella Window and Door of Georgia today. So, uh, John, I'm going to bring you into the conversation we were just having. By the way, great to see your face on video as always. Do you think the Georgia offense is underrated, that big results, not exactly producing the best reputation? Sometimes the skill position recruits seem to have a little bit of a different perception. Credit to Julian Lewis for at least being honest about that. You know, how does all of that land with you? Yeah, I think it's been underrated. I think the biggest question this past year was how do we transition from the Todd Munkin era into the Mike Bobo era offensively and transition from Stetson to Carson. And you talk about uh, the ability to not only – maintain a high level of performance but also uh, at times exceed what expectations were for this offense and you know admittedly georgia's defense has been a cornerstone of this kirby smart era but what i do think has been underrated is the ability of this offense to perform week in and week out and um, this past year was no exception i thought there was very little, if not, uh, there certainly wasn't much drop off offensively. And at times it looked more explosive than what we've grown accustomed to in these past years. So you talk about negative recruiting, you talk about other programs trying to poke holes in what continues to be one of the best places for an athlete to come and, and prove their worth on a weekend, week out basis, not only in practice, but on, on the field. Yeah, I'm looking at the SEC stand, or, you know, rankings this past year. So LSU led the league in scoring at 45.5 points per game. Georgia was second at 40.1 points per game. John, the next closest team to Georgia was Ole Miss, who came up uh, number three at 35.1 points per game. So Georgia was not only the you know, along with LSU, the only teams in the SEC to score 40 points per game, but they averaged five more points per game than the number three team on that list. So clearly there's nothing wrong with the Georgia offense, which as you kind of alluded to, but the overall perception would, would, would doesn't seem to match the actual results. So, you know, I guess my question would be is clearly the Georgia offense doesn't need to be fixed. It's working, you know, seemingly really well. But how do you fix that perception? Hmm. Yeah, well, you look at it, and point differential is probably a factor as well because because Georgia has a defense and plays complementary football, there's times when games are already in hand before that 60 minutes is up. And so you've transitioned to some of your backup players and you're not focused on uh, you know blowing another team out. It's let's see if we can keep our horses – uh, healthy because we're playing a long season. Georgia plans on playing well into the postseason, most years college football playoffs and vying for national championships. So I think that's part of the recruiting pitch is you are you do have opportunities. If you're an offensive player, if you're a quarterback like Juju, then just look at what we do. Don't listen to what other naysayers are saying on the outside because we've given platforms to player for players to perform. It's not just running backs. It certainly is a part of what we do and the identity of Georgia's uh, attack of, of opponents, but there is opportunities for quarterbacks. We've seen that with Stetson. We've seen that with Carson. Uh, we, we allow our quarterbacks to make plays, and I think Georgia's done a much better job of providing these weapons around them to kind of highlight those skills, not just the Brock Bowers of the world, but uh, as what we've seen. And, you know, you just had the senior bowl this past weekend. There's a number of other highly skilled players that are surrounding these quarterbacks to make them look even better. Played a clip a little earlier from ESPN's Matt Barry, who says that the retirement of Nick Saban doesn't really impact Georgia all that much because Georgia's already beaten Alabama. If anything, things might get a little easier, but ultimately this is a story about other SEC teams who perhaps have been a little bit more under 
Alabama's thumb. You know, I guess my question for you would be, you know, how much do you think that Georgia will be impacted by a sort of a Nick Saban-less landscape in college football now moving forward? Yeah, I, I think it's a huge factor. I think Nick Saban is the number one recruit recruiting tool that Alabama had. And uh, I'm actually really grateful that on his departure, we didn't see a heck of a lot more loss from our coaching staff. Uh, so I think that's a win in and of itself. But to, to think that Georgia's not going to be affected because Nick Saban's not in Tuscaloosa, I think would be naive. I see it as a huge boost. It's the number one uh, recruiting foe in this Southeast region for Georgia. And not having the best in, in college football history at the helm over there, and, and to think that that wouldn't factor in in some of these five-star and four-star players on their decision-making as to where they want to be and how they see uh, their pathway to professional sports uh, being impacted as to not having an opportunity to be coached by Nick Saban but still have an opportunity to be coached by Kirby Smart, to think that that wouldn't be a factor I think is uh, – is pretty naive. I want to do two quick follow-ups on this, or follows up, whatever you <laughs> follow-ups, however you say it. Um, the, the first one I wasn't going to mention this, but since you kind of brought it up, I, I want to you know uh, say something about this. You talked about how the Saban departure didn't really create as much like rumor mill stuff about Georgia guys perhaps leaving and going to Alabama. Maybe you know tops on that list, Glenn Schumann, and that rumor, like you said, that never really materialized at all. But, John, I don't know if you hear this kind of thing or not, but it seems like some of that Schumann stuff, you know, possibly going to the NFL, it seems like some of that kind of stuff is still out there a little bit, perhaps not to Philadelphia, which was, I guess, the rumored destination for him a year ago. But it does seem like you talk to enough people, there is still some thought out there that Glenn Schumann might have a little bit of an NFL future. As I said before, I wasn't planning on mentioning that today. But, boy, you do – that rumor just doesn't completely die here. Do you take that seriously at all? Uh, I, I don't know specifically for Glenn Schumann whether that's the case. And I do think that there is just rumors swirling about college coaches having interest in the NFL because of the demands that they have off the field. It's not just can I coach my position group? Can I coordinate a offensive or defensive unit? Uh, but it's constant recruitment. With that said – I don't see that as, you know, that's going to be a factor for some of these guys. They, they recognize that, you know, there is a carrot and, and there is a higher level, if you will, of, of this sport. And it's played in the NFL. You got guys that where the margin of error shrinks considerably when you get to, to that level. But uh, there's still a ton of pros of being able to, to coach and impact these young men in ways that make huge difference, not only on the field and their their future uh, between the lines, but what you can do in their lives off the field. So, uh, you know, I, I'm not going to speak specifically to, to what Glenn Schumann's desires are moving forward in, in coaching, but I think he answered a lot of questions just with the uh, quiet nature that this offseason had surrounding him specifically. I think you look at his pedigree and very easily he could have been in the conversation for a number of high level positions and he chose to stick uh, to be a part of this program. So uh, who knows how long term that is, uh, as much impact and, and what you hear about him coming from the folks that know. Obviously, the, the ceiling is very high and he will have opportunities in the future. Uh, but when you're a part of a program like Coach Smart has built, that's kind of the nature of the beast. You'll have coaches that you can recruit and, and welcome in. And you also understand that. Uh, there's many of them have higher aspirations and those kind of opportunities have already been created. Yeah. You've seen that with, you know, Sam Pittman and others where position coaches find opportunities because they've been uh, an integral part of the program here at Georgia uh, that manifests itself into other opportunities for them down the road. And then to bring it back to the Nick Saban thing here for a moment, we showed a like a ranking the other day that some you know national writer had done of the top coaches in college football no surprise that kirby smart was on top of that list but john what we kind of found to be fascinating on this show was is you start going through you know second rank coach third rank coach you know the number two guy on the list was brian kelly that's a coach that kirby's beaten three times already you know caitlin DeBoer obviously has had great success but i mean i could barely pick him out of a lineup he's not a very well-known face right now despite the fact that his resume 
is pretty impressive. And on and on you go of, you know, Dabo Swinney on that list, but seems to be on the way down. You know, Steve Sarkeesian seems to be on the way up, but that's like one year at Texas where you can really say that. My point is, John, perhaps the most like tangible, uh, I guess, thing to say about the Nick Saban-less world that Kirby Smart and Georgia now, you know, sort of find themselves in it's sort of hard to make the case who for the obvious number one uh, competitor to Georgia is, the number one competitor to Kirby Smart's sort of status as the top coach in college football. That kind of thing has never seemed less clear. If you want to sort of, for me, say, okay, here's what it means to live in a world where Nick Saban's no longer Alabama coach, the number one potential stumbling block for Georgia, it is not necessarily all that easy to identify right now. Yeah, I, I would say this. There's, you know, brand recognition is huge, right? Especially talking about recruiting. And you're talking about the brand as the program, but also the brand and coaches. And Nick Saban was a brand unto himself. Everyone recognized Nick Saban. He comes to your school, you're aware that he is in, in, in your mm-hmm. space. So I think that same. Uh, Aura exists around Coach Smart. He continues to build that. Obviously, doesn't have uh, quite the history that that Saban does currently or did this past year, but is building in that direction. You look at brand recognition. You look at folks that when they come to school, you know, uh, Kirby Smart's at the top of the list. There are others that try to create that social media presence, et cetera. Uh, you you think of a, a Texas program and, and the way that Texas A&M included the way they can build with NIL. And there's some awareness that pre-exists once a representative comes to their school. But if you get a coach smart to come to your school, that's a huge thing for for everyone involved. So I do think that, uh, you know, this brand recognition extends well past just the school and having a face of the program that everyone knows uh, is a big deal. So that's now moved to, to coach smart. I think there's a couple of others on the list that, you know, make that kind of mark, but not near the level that Kirby does. Uh, Senior Bowl, you had Lamb McConkie, all kinds of highlights from practices. I think Buller was honored as like the top safety of the practice week. Tyke, I believe, was the MVP of the game. I think Marcus Rosemey Jackson had a couple nice things happen for him. Any kind of overarching thoughts on what looked to be a pretty good week for uh, Georgia players there in Mobile? Do you have any takeaways from that? Yeah, I think people continue to undervalue uh, the talent that Georgia had, Lad specifically, you know, everybody talks about, oh, he's a great route runner, and you know, he's just got a knack for football. I think that underestimates his ability to uh, turn on the Jets. I think once you get to the combine and see that his numbers are exceptional, yeah, yeah. Marcus Rosemey Jack Saint had a big touchdown catch in the game. I think it's just going to speak to the level of talent that Georgia has, and. Uh, when you compare that to what other teams and, and the players from those teams, what they possess, I think it just shows the riches that Georgia has been able to uh, cultivate. And I also think that they practice at such a high level that that competition there's, you know, for some, they go to the senior bowl and they think, man, this is a huge jump. I think for these Georgia players, it's like, man, we've, we've seen players play at this high level every day. We step, step, take foot on the practice field. So, they're used to going up against the best. They're used to uh, trying to create – you know, you're watching a clip of Lad here. You're used to trying to create separation against some of the best uh, defensive backs in the league and, and vice versa for, you know, Ty Key and uh, Javon Bullard, who we all know has a nose for the football and is, is just a – boy, he's a football player, even if his stats don't exactly – uh, show him to be, you know, he's probably not going to run the fastest 40. He's not going to impress you there. But you put him on a football field, and I don't think there's a team out there that wouldn't be thrilled to have him. So, again, I think it shows the preparation that they have going into these type situations and just the the level of competition that they see day in, day out at Georgia and how that makes them – better prepared for these type opportunities. Biggest story of the weekend may have been this so-called alliance being formed between the SEC and the Big Ten. Now, I use you know air quotes around the idea of an alliance. 
uh, that's kind of a loaded you know term when it comes to college football. But the SEC did make an official announcement about this. This wasn't just a published report. The SEC announced this, you know, using their own kind of letterhead, so to speak, here. So this is clearly somewhat serious, and a lot of people going to interpret this as, oh, this is the first, you know, you know, uh, attempt to sort of strike down the NCAA, which perhaps it might be. I think there's some other stuff going on here too, which we'll kind of get to a little bit later on the program. But I'm always curious because you know you're a pretty big stakeholder in all this, John. Um, you know what you think about the SEC and the Big Ten now, at least for now, some attempt to work together to sort of fix what might be broken with college athletics. What what, what do you think about that? Yeah, I think there's plenty of jockeying and positioning going on. I think the NCAA tried to make themselves remain relevant, if that's possible. Of you know, what was it a couple months ago when they sent mm-hmm. out that that note that when you, you talk to some of the you talk to Sankey and he was like, well, this is the first I'm hearing of it with yeah. with you uh, at the same time. So there's positioning, there's some posturing that's taking place as to what college football specifically is going to look like going forward. I don't think that there's a lot of folks that know there's too many, yeah. you know, I think the courts are going to have a huge impact on the direction and uh, abilities that exist, whether it's from a conference standpoint or from NCAA across the board. Um, but I think this is a, a one of those early shots where you're going, we've all seen this. I mean, everyone knows that the SEC and Big Ten has been stockpiling resources, uh, not just uh, in-house, but the, the additions of the teams. I think what you're seeing from Florida State is a recognition of like, holy cow, maybe we're on the outside looking in. There's others that feel the same way. And can they make those decisions to stay relevant? Because, you know, even from NCAA talking about their tiered system, uh, seeing for the first time SEC and Big Ten working in in conjunction, I'm sure this has been taking place for a long time uh, behind the scenes and will continue to. And this is kind of our first glimpse uh, behind the curtain, if you will, to recognize what we've all seen and where the tea leaves have pointed that, you know, there's the SEC, the Big Ten and everyone else. Um, And there's still so much for it to sort out before we find a real conclusion as to what college football will look like. But I think it's safe to say three or four years down the road, it's going to be a far cry from what we've known um, even five years ago. So in this decade that we're in big changes are happening and will continue to i want to ask you one more follow-up to that and then we'll let you go you're always very generous for your time to me this sort of is a continuation of what we talk about a lot which is oh man college athletics got these issues college football in particular it's got these issues we got to do something to fix all of this and when you hear this news coming out on friday i think the response of a lot of people is oh the sec and the big 10 are going to come together and fix some of this stuff i want to ask you a purposely broad question what exactly are we trying to fix? Like, what specific? Like, like, like. To to me, the the biggest issue we sort of have as a sport right now is is I don't know. There's much in the way of like clear articulation as to what like the prime issue is, and like, you know, everybody has this sort of general sense that something's not quite right, but people have a hard time defining specifically what that is. So, if these two entities are going to come together and fix it. Like what? What is it? What is what is right now the number one thing that needs to be fixed in your mind? Yeah, identity. I think identity of college football needs to be <laughs> fixed because what it has been, it's no longer, and what it can be or what it will be is undecided. So what we've known is you know school allegiance, both from a fan base and from a player perspective. And that's changing. Uh, you, you look at NILs and transfers and the conjunction of those two. You look at uh, the devaluing and the transitioning away from bowl games. I know that's existed in the past, but the expansion of college football playoffs, the uh, general perception of college football being a platform for bigger programs like Georgia, Ohio State, Alabama, fill in the blank with those remaining in that category. And then the others, there's a stratification that's existing. There is uh, identification that, you know, Georgia has been able to recruit at a countrywide uh, level. And it's seen as a stepping stone to bigger things is, is college football just viewed, uh, now as an, a, a gateway to professional sports. 
Yes, it's always aspects of these concepts have existed for a long time, but I think they're all bubbling up at the same time. So what does that manifest itself as? It manifests as a question of identity. What is college football? Who, you know, what's the audience? How is it built? What's it look like? Never in, in, the, in my history of, of recognizing college football have so many things been in question or in transition. So as you change the ability for players to, to change uh, affinities and, and alliances, if you will, the same exists for teams, which hasn't really existed in the past or schools. Uh, there's just so much that's in flux, uh, relationships to bowl games, et cetera, that I think it's an identity question. I think what does college football uh, want to be and, and need to look like moving forward? Because it certainly isn't going to look like what we've known in the past. John, I think it's really fascinating stuff. I always appreciate your opinion on uh, matters such as this because I do think you bring a lot of insight to the table. We appreciate you being here on Dog Nation Daily, presented by Pella Window and Door of Georgia today. We'll look forward to speaking to you again very soon as well. Hey, I always enjoy it, B.A. Go dogs. Great stuff. Let's take a look around the rest of the league. This is SEC Through. You always love getting the go dogs from John there at the end, kind of a customary sign-off. And I think his idea about – you know, if you sort of boil this down to, because do y'all feel the same way that I do that your head sort of hurts sometimes because there's all this talk of we got to fix what's broken, we got to fix what's broken, and you know I do believe that one of the most significant issues facing college athletics is is that while there's this general sense that oh, I'm not quite so sure everything's right with this, you know, these sports, this sport, college ball in particular, the actual defining of what the true problem is and the course of action to sort of solve that specific problem. Boy, it just doesn't seem like there's a whole lot of clarity around all of that. I think that John's, you know, idea about an identity, you know, defining your identity. Now, let me tell you what I think that means. To me, college football's identity is these are, as corny and trite as this sounds, these are student athletes representing their universities in intercollegiate athletics. That's the identity of college football. Now, that comes across a little bit phony because this is obviously a whole lot more than just school. Um, you know, these guys are obviously interested in their professional futures, perhaps more than their current academic present. I realize all of that, but somehow the facade is quite valuable. People come to college athletics because that's how they perceive it. Even if deep down they know that's not quite real and not quite true, they still perceive it. It's sort of like Christmas, right? It's like deep down people know that sometimes Christmas can be a little too commercial and, you know, there's a certain sort of superficial part of Christmas, but people still love Christmas. College athletics to me is a lot the same way, that a lot of people kind of know, well, deep down this really hasn't been about academics for a long time and deep down this is all kind of sort of in some way sort of fake and put on, but boy, it's still really, really fun. That's the way that college athletics comes across. And so to me, the existential question for college athletics moving forward is, is in this lucrative business, clearly the athletes deserve some sort of compensation for their participation in this business. But how do you properly compensate them without turning them into employees? If I had the power over college athletics, that's the question I would be trying to answer. How do you do right by them and make it fair for as many different athletes as possible without completely redefining what college football kind of is? Because when you take something that's been very popular for more than a century, you tear it down, you try to build it back into something different, there's just a huge level of risk there in terms of replacing it with something that's as equally beneficial to society overall. No guarantee that you'll be able to do that. If I had to sort of define the specific issue facing college football, that would be it. How do you pay these guys with their worth while still making this feel like college football? That, to me, is the issue at hand here. Now, we've got more on this SEC Big Ten union that's been formed. We'll give you more of that here in a moment. Before that, though, let me remind you that we are cruising around the SEC, courtesy of – I almost forgot which camera we were going to there. Uh, cruising around the SEC, courtesy of Royal Caribbean, and getting ready for the Dog Nation cruise coming up in April on board Allure of the Seas. And, man – I hear from people. In fact, I bumped into a great Georgia fan at the Gym Dogs there on Friday. We were uh, having a, a nice time there. Took my daughter to see the uh, gymnastics team compete. Obviously, coming up a, a little bit short against those lousy stinking Gators, but nonetheless, a fun time was uh, had there. 
and I uh, bumped into a good Georgia fan and uh, he's like, listen, I wish I could be on that Dog Nation cruise with you. And I said, listen, I wish you're going to be there as well. I'd love for all of you to be able to be there and be a part of that. Uh, and you still have a little bit of a time to be able to do that. Our friend Jessica Slater's got you taken care of here right now. You can give her a call, 770-718-9147. That's 770-718-9147. You can also email her, jslater at dreamvacations.com. You can check out the website, royaldogs.com, and take advantage of these final opportunities to join us on board Allure of the Seas for the Dog Nation Cruise. It is time now to do it. We're ready to go on it. We need you there with us. Dog Nation Cruise coming up in April. Uh, make sure you act on that here right now. So as we talk to John Stinchcomb, there is a little bit of a working relationship being formed with the SEC and the Big Ten. You sort of wonder, what's that all about? Some people suggesting on Friday, oh, they're ready to tear down the NCAA. They're tired of the NCAA. Maybe that's what this ends up being. But we do have some evidence of what they're working on right now because a guy named Ross Dellinger, who I believe of all the sort of national writers around college athletics, Ross is probably the best, seems to have the most useful information and, you know, seems to avoid, you know, some of the other stuff that we sometimes don't like for some of these national types, which I'll just sort of leave at that. But um, uh, Ross seems to do okay with, with, with a lot of this kind of stuff. And so what he's got up at Yahoo right now, which is his current employer, is that what actually the SEC and the Big Ten are working on right now is some sort of retort about the future of the college football playoff, which you may not realize this, the future of the college football playoff is far more in doubt than you might realize. We've got a contract in place for 2024 and for 2025, but beyond that, we have no uh, guaranteed or definable future for the college football playoff beyond that. We don't know, is it going to remain a 12-team playoff? Does it perhaps expand to 14 or 16? That's been discussed. Y'all, we also don't even know that the college football playoff is going to exist at all. That's how kind of up in the air some of this is here right now. And the sticking point is, is that the previously agreed upon model was in the 12-team playoff world what they call like a 6-6, six and six, which is six automatic bids based on the highest-rated conference champions. That would have included all of the Power Five plus the best group of five, theoretically. Um, and then you had six at-large teams making it there as well. There has been some movement towards, well, now there's no longer a Pac-12. Now you got to go to a five and seven. Uh, you basically remove one of the automatic bids from the uh, conference champions, and now you add the additional at-large. But the remnant, I know this gets a little bit tedious, but try to follow me on this. Uh, according to the reporting from Ross Dellinger at Yahoo, the remnants of what's left in the Pac-12, essentially just Oregon State and Washington State, they're fighting against that. They are they're trying to hold on to some opportunity for you know some sort of power in this. Of hey, as it stands right now, we technically speaking still have um, a college football playoff berth that goes to our league, and based on the current uh, you know contract, I told you this is tedious, but once again, try to follow me. Based on the current contract. Any kind of changes moving from the 6 plus 6 to the 5 plus 7 would require unanimous support. And right now, what's left over the Pac-12, they don't want to give that, which is a little bit of a mess. Then you've also got the issue here where currently, based on the contract that's in place, every Power 5 school gets about $6 million a year from the college football playoff. You just take the entire pot of money and you divide it, I think about 80% of this Pile goes to the Power Five, about 20% goes to the Group of Five, Independents, things like that. But the Power Five schools each get about $5 million, or was it $6 million, I think. Um, well, you're about to add SMU into the Power Five. They're about to be, uh, or I guess it's Power Four now, but you're about to add them into a power conference. They're, they're going to the ACC. They are assuming they're going to get the $6 million that comes to the college football playoff. But Greg Sankey and the SEC and the, the, the Big Ten, they don't want to give SMU this money. And so what you've got here is, is basically uh, a situation where the SEC and the Big Ten have come together to say, we are not guaranteed to work with any of you moving forward in a college football playoff, presumably unless we get a lot of significant concessions. So unfortunately, and this is where you got to be honest here for a moment, what you would like for it to be a situation where the SEC and the Big Ten are coming together and they're going to try to fix what's wrong with college athletics. 
The truth is, is they're just coming together to make sure they ring every possible dime they can out of the college football playoff. And somehow, some way, there may be a couple of dollar bills stapled to the floor somewhere they didn't get a chance to get their hands on. And listen, I don't fault them for wanting to make every bit of money they can. I, I, I truly don't. But, you know, for people who have these sort of grandiose ideas, ah, the SEC and the Big Ten are going to form this sort of, you know, superpower union. They're going to fix what's wrong with college athletics. No, instead, they see the the risk potentially of a few dollars ending up somewhere than, than in their own pocket. And so, therefore, they're going to fight together to make sure that doesn't happen, which is not exactly the most attractive uh, description necessarily. But that appears to be what's going on. So, SEC, Big Ten come together, sort of send a dire warning about their participation in the future college football playoff beyond 2025. I would take this somewhat seriously. I'm guessing we have a college football playoff. It may even be an expanded CFP. But beyond 2025, there is no current defined future for this sporting event uh, worth paying attention to there. Ross Dellinger reporting on that at Yahoo. Um, We have talked about this story now a couple of times. We'll follow up on it here right now. That Kentucky Athletic Athletic Director, Kentucky Offensive Coordinator Liam Cohen, who has been in the NFL, came back to Kentucky, uh, has now gone back to the NFL again. He's going to become the offensive coordinator for the Tampa Bay Bucks. And the one question we keep bringing up on this over and over again is, where does this leave Brock Vandegrift? Vandegrift, who went to Kentucky to work with Cohen, a respected offensive mind, well, now Cohen's not going to be there. There's, of course, always the chance that Kentucky you know, has an effective replacement here. You even hear some chatter about some names that are out there right now. But Cohen is a good OC. And Kentucky, without Liam Cohen, both prior to his first stint and after uh, after that first stint in 2022, the Kentucky offense under Mark Stoops, without Liam Cohen as offensive coordinator, is just not the same thing. They hired another NFL guy named Rich Scangarello uh, for the 2022 season. And the Kentucky offense, even with a guy like Will Leff as a quarterback, just was not the same. Liam Cohen is just a top-flight offensive mind. That's why the Bucks want him. And that's why Brock Vandegrift, you would guess, wanted to go to Kentucky. Well, now Cohen's not going to be there. What does this mean for Vandegrift? I think it's a little too early to know here right now, but you got to imagine, unless he had some sort of you know foreknowledge of this and they know who the replacement's going to be, sometimes that does happen. you got to imagine this is a little bit of a disappointment for uh, Brock Vandegrift, he had to guess. Uh, speaking of disappointments, Auburn dealing with some disappointment here. Kendarius Reddick's a four-star safety, had been an Auburn commit, but over the course of the weekend, I think we have a screenshot we can show you here, flips from Auburn to UCF. So Gus Malzahn, perhaps, getting a little bit of revenge against Auburn on this. And I think if you're Auburn, this is problematic for a couple of reasons. A, I do believe the presence of Gus Malzahn in Orlando at UCF causes a little bit of an issue here because Auburn has not been very good since he left. Now, eventually, Hugh Freeze can probably be a pretty successful coach. But up to this point, the Brian Harson era was a total disaster. Hugh Freeze, year one, not exactly the most confidence-inspiring. Yeah, there you go. Uh, Kendarius Reddick tells me he's flipped from Auburn to UCF, Hayes Fawcett put. Nice graphic there showing the bounce house in the background, the space shuttle launching from Port Canaveral, by the way, right down the down the street from the cruise port where we leave out of. Uh, the point is, is uh, good times there in Orlando coming at the expense of Auburn, uh, who was holding on to the commit, but now Gus Malzahn swoops in and perhaps gets a little bit of revenge against his old school here. So when, when you've got Malzahn at UCF doing some pretty good things, and now UCF is a power program playing in the Big 12, it's a little bit of an issue for Auburn. I'd say it's also a little bit of an issue for like a program like Florida 2, which has to play UCF this year. Malzahn, to his credit, I would say has UCF feeling a little bit more like a true legitimate college football program than any point in time in its history. I know there was a few years ago Scott Frost proclaiming a national championship. That's frankly pretty meaningless and pretty hollow. What's not meaningless and hollow is, y'all can look this up for yourself. For those of you who follow this closely, you already know this. UCF is the best recruiting program in the Big 12 right now. There's no one in in that league recruiting better than Gus Malzahn is at UCF. And if you're Auburn, you better believe they notice it, especially when Malzahn's taking players away from the Tigers. 
And oh yeah, by the way, all of this happening just briefly after DJ Durkin, we talked about his controversial pass, uh, all of this happening just after DJ Durkin was announced as Auburn's defensive coordinator. We don't know these two things are connected, but certainly the hire of Durkin didn't prevent this from happening. Once again, you can't help but notice that. So uh, tough times there. Uh, at Auburn, we'll make that cruising around the SEC, courtesy of Royal Caribbean. But tough times, obviously, not just for Auburn there as well. Tough times for Georgia basketball, dropping the game on Saturday to South Carolina. What we had said about this, and I forget if we said this on the cool down or if we said this on the uh, the regular broadcast, but what we had said was is that the game against South Carolina on Saturday was probably the first game all year long where you kind of had some real expectations for Georgia. We sort of thought this was a game that Georgia needed to win. Now, South Carolina is about to be a top 25 team. They were already ready, solidly in the NCAA tournament field, but this is a home game. You'd already beaten them on the road. You had really been competitive in recent games, only let those leads slip away. That Georgia probably had I want to say obligation, but this was one of those games you just probably needed to win, and uh, Georgia not able to get that done, and all of a sudden now you have a completely different, I, I think, recalibration of expectation the rest of the way. Georgia has, what, I believe nine games left. Some of these pretty tough. The back-to-back road games coming up, Mississippi State and Arkansas. You know, this is about, I think, the rest of the way for Georgia trying to make good on some of the promise of the early season and the excitement, the enthusiasm that Georgia had when it had the winning streak and when they went on the road and they won in South Carolina, finding some way to kind of remind you of that before the year is done. I don't believe that Georgia has had any kind of postseason berth since 2017. Obviously, the NIT is a possibility if they win more games here this year. And for Georgia right now, that's not nothing. Unfortunately, I think our time of talking about the possibility of Georgia making the NCAA tournament has probably completely disappeared. But this is still a fun team to watch. Mike White's still doing, I think, a pretty good job with this uh, team. But ultimately, here in 2024, it's not going to quite materialize and be what we perhaps wanted it to be. Georgia, unfortunately, dropping a uh, basketball game. They you know, certainly had a chance to win there on Saturday against a good South Carolina bunch. And, and uh, in relationship to all of that, our golden shoe today, I am being criticized for my role in the collapse of Georgia basketball. Foster Moss, one of our YouTube commenters, who generally speaking I kind of like, Foster and I seem to have a pretty good relationship with each other. He put it out there on the comment section on Friday, uh, and ultimately this proved to be true once again, that ever since I got the basketball on the set, the Georgia basketball team hadn't won a single game. Uh, today, the basketball is nowhere to be found because Foster is probably correct on this. That we had, you know, we had said before we're, you know, bandwagon hoppers to the Georgia basketball team. And so we'd had the Georgia basketball on the set and having some fun with that, you know, just sort of celebrating what we thought were some chance to get some good wins. Unfortunately, the basketball proved not to be uh, very good luck. Foster's right about that. So I'll own the L. I'll hold the L on that. And we'll give Foster a golden shoe for calling me out. He's probably right to do so. So. Disappointing uh, on a number of fronts there on that. Lousy, stinking Gators, though. They've got it even worse. 1,185 days since they've beaten Georgian football, the sport that matters. And we love reveling in all of that. And, of course, we'll see you back here tomorrow for Dog Nation Daily, presented by Palo Window and Door of Georgia.